Hello, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ at Mafra. Uh, greetings. Um, it's good to be with you again. I am looking forward to being there in person when uh, circumstances permit. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your prayers this past week. It's been a difficult week. Sal uh, was very ill last week. Well, she's always very ill, but there's times when her condition takes on a particularly extreme dimension and last weekend was one of them. She ended up with a really high temperature and it, as it turned out was caused by a, a very serious blood infection that put her in uh, uh, Warrigal Hospital first and then she was transferred to the Austin Hospital in Heidelberg where she lived for two years um, and she was in the ICU until yesterday. So she's, she's out of ICU, she's in a hydro dependency unit and we're confident that she'll be home early next week. We trust that that'll be the case. So. Uh, it looks like the uh, the crisis has passed and uh, we're tremendously grateful to God for that. And of course, God uses the prayers of his people. So thanks very much for praying for us. Uh, but speaking of prayer, let's uh, let's speak to God now and, um, and then let's consider his word together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we pray that you would open our eyes to understand wonderful things from it today. We pray that as we consider Acts chapter 3, that you would uh, teach us more about uh, the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the reality of uh, your free gift of salvation in him, how he came to be the one who fulfilled uh, all the promises of the Old Testament and he's the one who's going to come and make everything new and establish your kingdom eternally on earth, uh, a kingdom where there'll be no, um, no causes of mourning or fear um, anymore. Um, and so we pray that you would help us today to learn from your word things that will equip us to serve you well uh, and help us also as we battle with the things that cause us to grieve and mourn even now. So we pray that you would help us to get a, a godly, heavenly, biblical perspective on our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's have a look at Acts chapter 3 as we continue our series on the book of Acts. Uh, and it would be very helpful if you've already had a look at Deuteronomy 15 and also Isaiah 35, because there's no question that those passages from the Old Testament form a substantial backdrop to this one and others besides. But let's have a look at Acts chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognised him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate at the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's astounded and when Peter saw it he addressed the people men of Israel why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk the God of Abraham 
the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Well, I have met one or two earth authors in my life, um, there were guys that I used to have as lecturers at Ridley who'd written books and sometimes you talk to them about them. And I, I guess an author, would, when they write a book, would, would want the people who read it to understand it. Everybody who writes a book has a point that they're trying to make. Um, everybody who writes a song or paints a picture, they're doing it for a purpose. Uh, Luke, as he wrote his gospel and the book of Acts, he had a purpose and he explains those things right at the beginning in what we call the prologue, the first few verses of each of those books. And so we can get a sense of Luke's priorities as we look at the introduction to the book and as we see the amount of space that he devotes in his books to the kind of topics he addresses. It would be impossible to tell about everything that Jesus did. It would be impossible to tell about everything that the apostles did. Uh, so Luke has to be selective, but like a good historian, he does that. Uh, it's interesting, actually, uh, the book of Acts, he starts at a very early point, he names the apostles and how they had to have 12 of them. And so they selected Matthias to replace Judas, who uh, had betrayed Jesus. So there were 12 apostles in chapter 1, but we really only read about, in significant detail, about two of the apostles, that's Peter, and then Paul, who wasn't one of the 12. So it's interesting, Luke is selective in what he portrays in his book. And we've got to let his intentions and his priorities drive our understandings of what's important in this part of God's Word. So let's have a look again. Chapter 1, verse 1, his uh, prologue statement in the first book, the o Theophilus, the person he wrote to, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now we've seen this before, but the implication is that if the first book, the Gospel of Luke, 
began, uh, talked about all that Jesus began to do and teach, then this sequel, the book of Acts, is going to deal with what Jesus is continuing to do and teach, except that Jesus is now in heaven because he ascended in chapter 1. But before he ascended, he left instructions to his disciples. And so scholars believe, interpreters of the Bible believe, that chapter 1, verse 8 is almost like uh, Luke's essay plan. It's like his thesis statement. This is what we can expect as the book unfolds. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, Jesus speaks to them says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus, if we put these things together, is going to continue to do things and teach things in the power of the Holy Spirit and through his apostles who are going to witness. They're going to tell what they've seen and what they've heard and what they've come to believe, not just in Jerusalem, but everywhere it's possible to go, right to the ends of the earth. And so at the end of chapter 2, we find a summary of things. We've seen the day of Pentecost. We've, we've seen the response to that. And we find there a description of the earliest Christian communities. Now, they weren't called Christians yet. We have to wait till Acts chapter 11 before they were called Christians, but we'll call them Christians for the, the sake of it. These were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, the apostles taught what Jesus taught. They taught about Jesus and they taught the things that Jesus taught. So that's what Luke says is going to be the, 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 the topic of the book. What Jesus began to do and teach, he's continuing through the apostles. And the earliest believers devoted themselves to that, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And many wonders and signs were done. So remember, Jesus uh, did many wonderful things. He did many things that were called signs. They were pointers to something bigger. So Luke, in his prologue, says the first book was about what Jesus began to do and teach. What did he do? He did wonders and signs. What did he teach? Well, he taught about the kingdom of God. So we can expect the sequel, the book of Acts, to deal with that. Now, I thought it might be interesting to do a little bit of a survey of the whole book and see the weight that Luke gives to these things, just visually. Let's have a scan through it. Luke's book is all about the apostles' teaching, the message about Jesus and of Jesus. The message is that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah, that the prophets' last days, what was the, the time to come for the, for the prophets has actually come in the era of the apostles uh, and it will continue until Jesus returns. That's the last days. Uh, the apostles were, were clear that scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of scripture. That was the burden of their message as they went out. They said, what we've been waiting for has come. God's kingdom has come and it is still to come uh, because God has sent his Messiah, his true king. And so there's, as a result of that, people need to repent. Everyone everywhere must repent. They must turn away from their present way of life that Jesus came to forgive through his death on the cross. They need to repent. And those who repent will show that they're the ones who truly believe and truly understand God's promises. So the book of Acts lays out a series of tests. Who were the correct inheritors of all that the Old Testament said must happen? Who are the ones who truly believe God's promises? Because the ones who do will be the ones that believe in Jesus. And so as we look at the book of Acts in this visual survey we're about to embark on, I've coloured in green the things that Jesus is continuing to do, the signs and wonders that Luke talks about in the book of Acts. 
in yellow are the things that Jesus is continuing to teach through his apostles. That's in yellow. Luke includes at various points throughout his book little summary statements, and they're fascinating as to where they go and the relationship they have to the signs and also to the teaching. And so the first of them is at Luke chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Luke wants to show that the gospel mission is progressing. And so we'll colour those blue. But the gospel mission progresses through the word. And so I've coloured the word in red. And it's interesting just how often Luke refers to the word. And sometimes he talks about the gospel or the good news. And, and he uses those two words interchangeably. So the word, the gospel and good news are in red. Let's have a look at the book of Acts. So, uh, day of Pentecost, big green slab, but then a bigger yellow slab of teaching to explain the significance of the signs and the wonders. Notice the red dots. The, uh, the word was important all the way through. And then there's a summary. At the end of verse 42 of chapter 2, the Lord added to their number. Another sign, the one we've been, we'll be looking at today, the healing of the man sitting at the other uh, temple. Uh, into chapter 3, but a long sermon to explain it as Peter takes the opportunity. More evidence of the word, more evidence of signs and wonders in green, uh, more summaries in blue. But as we move on, long speeches, long speeches, more signs and wonders, but longer speeches. Are you getting a sense of what Luke wants us to notice? It's the preeminence of this preached word. It's the word that leads to salvation. It's the word that causes the mission of Jesus to advance. Signs and wonders are important in the mission of Jesus and his apostles, but even more important is the ministry of the word by which those signs and wonders are explained. And as the book of Acts continues, signs and wonders don't disappear, but they're in much, greater, much less frequent number. But all the way through, the ministry of the word is preeminent. And so Acts chapter 3, the story of the man sitting at the temple gate, the man aged over 40, uh, that Peter and John came and healed. I've, I've called this passage One Sign and 2,000 Miracles. So the first part is the setting, and we see that it actually goes back into the previous reading. We, we read there in chapter 2, verse 43, War came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. This is a summary of things as they progressed from the day of Pentecost. So many signs and wonders, many signs and wonders were being done. And of those many, here's one. And so Peter and John, being observant Jews, are on their way to the temple at three in the afternoon for the time of prayer. And they came up to a man who'd been lame from birth. He'd never walked. And he was laid every day at the, uh, at the gate of the temple that's called the Beautiful Gate. And he asked for money. Uh, and so good Jews going past would try to help him in his suffering by giving him things. Well, Peter and John weren't able to do that. Uh, so he asked them for money, but they didn't have anything to give him. And so having introduced the setting, we now get to the sign. And so Peter and John speak to the man uh, and and Peter says, look at me. And John looks at him too. And the man looks back. And Peter says, in effect, I've got a gift for you, which is better than money. He says, silver and gold, I haven't got any of. But what I have got, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And we're told that the man did. 
straight away. His ankles were made strong. Uh, he stood up, and not only did he stand, he leapt. Now, three times Luke emphasizes that he was walking, and not only walking, he was leaping, he was jumping. And so that's a clear reference back to the fact that the lame will leap like a deer from Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah's looking ahead to the day when the Messiah will restore the whole creation, when God's uh, ruined creation, ruined by sin and the fall, is going to be restored by his true king. And this is a foretaste of that. And we see it here at the temple gate with this man lame from birth, leaps, not just walks, he leaps, and he goes with Peter and John into the temple. And it's important to notice this, that it was an instantaneous healing. This is a man who'd never walked, and now he not only walked, he jumped. It was instantaneous, it was organic. Peter and John didn't give him a better set of crutches. They didn't put plaster casts on his legs. Uh, my dad was invited to go as a dentist once to a healing meeting. Uh, dad was a, a, a dentist and he had many many Christian patients, one of whom was a journalist for a Christian newspaper, and there was this healing meeting coming up, and the man claimed to specialise in the healing of the mouth. And, uh, and so this journalist asked Dad, would he go to the meeting with him? And the man asked as, as he began the meeting, are there any dentists here? Dad identified himself. And, uh, and, and so the man said, well, when we're done with the healings, I'm going to get you to come down and verify them. So Dad agreed that that would be fine. And so anyway, having gone through the, uh, the rigmarole of, of the healing, um, so-called, uh, he got all of those to come who wanted a healing of the mouth to line up. He put his hands on them and said a form of words. And at the end of it all, he, he said, right, if there's anybody here with a buzzing in their mouth, come on down and let me have a look and see. And so there were people who went down. Well, Dad at this point raised his hand and said... Uh, excuse me, but you, you asked me to come and verify them. So the man said, all right, well, come on down. And so Dad uh, had a look in these mouths. That was his job. He looked in mouths every day. That's what put bread on our table. Uh, anyway, the man only had a torch. The healer had a torch. And Dad looked in there and he said, well, I'm sorry, nothing's happened. Because what the man had claimed was that their fillings had been turned to gold. Uh, so they'd had old fillings and they were brand new gold ones. And Dad looked inside and it's funny how... People, when they do things for a while, become somewhat expert at it. Uh, Dad looked inside and he said, no, those feelings are 20 years old. Nothing's happened. And so the man rebuked him and the crowd booed him. Uh, and so Dad had to stand there facing the rebuke of the healer and the, uh, the booing of the crowd because he was spoiling the party. But Dad said, no, I've, uh, he said, you'll be gone tomorrow. He said, I've got to practice dentistry in this town. Uh, and, and my reputation stands or falls on my judgments. He said, I'm telling you, those, those fillings are old. Uh, but then he said, but speaking as a Christian, when Jesus did a healing, when the apostles did a healing, it was organic. It was complete. It, was, it wasn't just a, a band-aid. It wasn't just a gold filling. He said, if that was a genuine spiritual healing, there would be no filling there at all. It would be dentine and enamel. Biblical healings restore a person to the created state, uh, not with band-aids, not with broken, uh, not not with uh, with plasters, not with better glasses or better crutches, not with the gift of a, of a wheelchair. But they restore them to the created state, and that's what Peter and John did. This is a sign that the new creation is breaking into the present. Well, anyway, there was a wondering, amazed and astounded crowd we read about in verses 9 to 11. And so Peter seizes the opportunity and preaches. 
Have you heard the phrase, the, 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 the saying, a, a colourful local identity? Uh, someone who's well known around town. We've got one in Drew, we've got quite a few in Drew, and actually, and I dare say you do in Mafra as well. But there's a fella that sits at the roundabout at Drew, and he, he's confined to a, a motorised wheelchair, and uh, he, he's suffering an illness from which he won't recover. But he sits at the roundabout, or if it's wet, or sometimes just for a change of pace, he'll go and sit in the foyer of the supermarket and he waves to people. He's been written up in the newspaper and people wave back. He's just, his mission in life is to make people happy, it seems. And so he sits there and waves. He's a colourful local identity. Well, this man seated at the temple gate was a colourful local identity, a CLI. Because we read in chapter 4, we haven't got to it yet, but th this story continues with the reaction from the Jewish leaders in chapter 4 that we'll see next time. And we read there that he was over 40 and that he was seated at the temple every day, we already know. So this man is a fixture in Jerusalem and everybody who is now seeing him walking and leaping knew what he was five minutes ago. It's a remarkable thing. I dare say if the colourful local identity in Druin was suddenly able to get rid of his, his uh, wheelchair, people would be surprised at that too. But that's what happened when Peter and John did this, spoke this word of healing. And so seizing the opportunity, Peter preaches to them. Now, like all good preachers, his sermon has a variety of points. And so point one, verse 12, he refuses to take any credit. But he gives it a little later where it's due. He says it's in the name of the ascended Jesus that this man's been healed. But between verses 13 to 15, he gives a series of, con of contrasts. He says, in, in effect, there have been four verdicts passed on Jesus. Let's have a look at them in a slightly odd order, but verdict three, as it comes up, is that of Pilate, the, the Roman governor of Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was executed. Peter refers to the fact that Pilate had decided to release Jesus because he decided that he was innocent. So Pilate's in the clear as far as Peter's concerned. But then he talks to you and he means the Jews. He means the crowd in Jerusalem who were all complicit in the execution of Jesus. Now this is incredibly bold for Peter to be addressing another crowd just as he had on the day of Pentecost and being so pointed that they in fact were responsible for the death of an innocent man but more than an innocent man, as we'll see. And so Peter says that, in fact, they've done four things. They delivered or handed him over. They denied him, which means they refused to accept the claims that he made. Peter says he's the holy and righteous one. That's some denial, because that Peter's saying he, he's God. Not only did they deny him, they preferred a murderer. They wanted the release of Barabbas. When Pilate offered them to release a prisoner... They said, let's have Barabbas. He was a murderer. So they preferred a murderer, but they murdered their creator, the author of life, Peter calls him, the one who spoke existence into being. And they've not only denied him, they've killed him. And Peter lays the blame very firmly at their feet. But then the third verdict is that of God, or the first verdict. Uh, God glorified him by raising him from the dead. He didn't stay in the grave. He was raised and vindicated and glorified and now taken into heaven. And the fourth and last verdict is that of the apostles, we, Peter and John, speaking on behalf of all the others as well. And in effect, they're saying we agree with God because we've seen the evidence of him being raised 
and therefore glorified. And that's why they're able to say he's the author of life. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the one that the Old Testament led good Jewish people to be expecting. And Peter makes this stunning claim. He says, it's nothing that we've done. It's nothing that we've even said. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, it's his name, the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter took no credit to himself, which again is a hallmark. It's an indicator of genuine gospel ministry. All glory goes to Jesus. He uses people, but all glory belongs to Jesus. Now in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter did similar when he was speaking to the crowd at the day of Pentecost. He said that Jesus was a man accredited to them by the signs that he'd done and he was accredited by God and that the things that Jesus did, he did through the power that God gave him. The implication here is Jesus isn't physically present. He can't be seen. But they all know that Peter and John have healed in his name. And so the implication is that the ascended and glorified Jesus is continuing to work in power now through these servants, these apostles. It's a healing of Jesus, but it was facilitated through Peter and John. And so... Having pointed all this out, Peter calls for a response. They had to repent. They couldn't stay as they were now that they'd seen this and now that they'd heard this. They had to change their minds. They had to change their minds completely about Jesus, the author of life, whom they'd killed. God's given his verdict on Jesus. He raised him and glorified him. The crowd has just witnessed an astonishing expression of the continuing power of Jesus. And so Peter's putting it out there. Dare you continue to reject one who's so obviously still alive? Peter and John couldn't have done this miracle. Only Jesus could have, and only through, uh, through them. Well, dare we reject one who's so obviously still alive? Now, I've never seen a miracle of this kind, but I believe it because I believe Peter and John. And I believe Luke, who carefully researched everything. And these things have been written down. And the evidence is strong that these things actually happened. And I believe them on account of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the fact that it's been uh, preserved for us in Scripture. Jesus is alive. He bore witness to that by working through Peter and John. Can we reject him? Can we turn him down and deny him? So the sermon continues and there's three fruits, three results of this repentance. The first is that sins will be blotted out. All those sins that have been committed in the past, including the denial and the, the handing over, the, the rejection of Jesus, that can be erased, it can be obliterated. Peter says another fruit of repentance is that times of refreshing will come. That's what the, the prophets forecast would come in the future. And what the prophets forecast would come in the glorious new age of God's kingdom, Peter says you can experience a foretaste of that now. Not in its completeness, that's the testimony of the New Testament, but you can have a measure of it now. Joy and peace and hope and love. All of those sorts of things that are the features of the new age can be your present experience in the power of the Holy Spirit now. Times of refreshing will come. And the third 
result of repentance is that we're ready when Jesus is revealed from heaven. Now, the, the whole New Testament was written against the backdrop of the, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus, but it was written in anticipation that the only aspect of God's program still to be fulfilled once the gospel had been preached to the nations was the return of Jesus and setting up his, his kingdom on earth. And Peter says that one of the results of repentance is that we will be ready when Jesus, who's been revealed in humility, returns to the world as its king and its judge. So this Jesus, the author of life, the holy and righteous one, the Messiah, Christ and Messiah, they mean the same. It just means the anointed. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. It means the anointed one, which is another way of saying God's king. But he's not only God's king, he's the world's true king and he will rule the world one day when he returns. Jesus is the one in whom all of the hopes and fears of, uh, of the Old Testament are, are met, to quote the, the, uh, the Christmas carol. Uh, all of the Old Testament's expectations, and Peter refers to some of them, the prophets he talks about in uh, uh, alluding to prophet Isaiah with uh, his reference to the servant. Uh, Moses said that one day God would send another prophet and people were expecting a prophet greater than Moses. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 18. But Peter refers also to the blessings of Abraham that will come to the whole world where the curse is undone, the fall is undone, and through a descendant of Abraham, God restores blessing to the world. Jesus, the holy and righteous one, the Messiah, the author of life, is that one who's done all these things in fulfilment of Old Testament expectation. Now I wonder if you've been wondering this, uh, because very often the book of Acts is held out as a book that has all these wonderful examples of extraordinary healing miracles, and people will tell you that those miracles should be the experience of every ill person even now if they have the right measure of faith or pray in the right way. Uh, why isn't everyone healed? Uh, it's a problem that I think probably concerns many of us, uh, especially when we prayed fervently for the healing of someone. We don't doubt that God has the power, the capacity to, to continue to heal as he obviously did on that day through Peter and John. Uh, but have you ever wondered why your prayers have not been answered perhaps as you would have wanted? Your own illness or that of a loved one uh, doesn't seem to be healed. What is going on? Why isn't everyone healed? We haven't got time to think about all of the dimensions of this. Perhaps we will another day. Uh, but I'd, I'd welcome phone calls or emails or whatever if you want to talk some more about it. But um, the Bible does have answers, but just a very, very brief survey. There are some features in the reading that help us to understand this. Chapter 3, verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus. It's, it's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. So that, if you looked at that on its own, you'd say, well, faith in Jesus, it brings healing. Why doesn't it bring healing all the times? Well, chapter 4, verse 22, which you'll look at next time, tells us that the healing was a sign. Now, that's a significant word. It was more than a miracle. It was a sign. Now, I, would, I did look up on Google Images for a sign that had Mafra on it, and I couldn't find one. So I'm very sorry to be uh, emphasising Druin today, but you'll just have to put up with it for a moment. It's not a bad town, by the way. Um, I like Mafra too, but Druin's OK. Uh, signs point to something. Uh, the sign is not the 
the point of the exercise. The sign is something that tells you you're on the right on the right track. You're headed in the right direction for for Warrigal and Druin. Uh, without signs, it can be a bit scary out there. I came back from Western Australia with my son uh, at Easter time, and we drove across the Nullarbor Road, a Nullarbor Plain. And if you've ever driven the Nullarbor, it's fairly featureless out there. Uh, there's lots of kilometres you go along and there's no signs. And we came upon this woman, uh, quite frantic, standing in front of her car, waving us down. So we stopped and asked her if everything was all right. She was in a four-wheel drive and it turns out she was driving alone across the Nullarbor and she decided to take a little detour, drove into the scrub. And when she came back out, she couldn't remember which direction she was supposed to be going in because there's no features to, to judge anything by. And so she said, am I heading in the right direction? And I said, well, if you keep heading down that way, you'll get to Norseman. Ah, oh, she said, thank you, thank you. Signs point to things. The signs are not the point in themselves. They're not the destination. They are an indicator. These miracles were signs of a greater reality. They were authenticating the doer as being the one who was the true bearer of the word of God. So you'll see that in Luke 5, you'll see it in Luke 11, and you'll see it again in Acts chapter 2. The signs that Jesus did authenticated him as being the bearer of God's word. The signs that the apostles did authenticated them as being the true bearers of God's word, the true representatives of Jesus. So there's one thing. But here's another thing that needs to be borne in mind. Jesus didn't heal everyone. So if you remember the story that's told in John 5 of Jesus going to the, the pool of Bethesda, uh, we, we read there that there was a multitude of invalids, but he chose just one to heal, a man who'd been there 38 years, a man just like in our story who couldn't walk at all. And for 38 years, he'd been waiting. And Jesus just healed that one. He didn't heal the rest. But even this man, we read in chapter 42, he was uh, chapter 4, verse 22, that he was over 40 years old. And we know already that he's been laid at the temple every day. What that means is Jesus walked past him. Jesus hadn't healed him yet. But Jesus has healed him now, but he left the physical aspect of the healing to Peter and John. Because you see, this was a sign that authenticated their ministry. If Jesus had healed him, well, it would have authenticated Jesus. But Jesus left this man for Peter and John to heal. But Jesus didn't send the apostles out to say, close down every hospital in Palestine. He sent them out to preach. And that's what they did. The healings were almost incidental. But the healings were the signs and the wonders that authenticated the apostles' message that drew a crowd that then resulted in a sermon. What does Luke make the priority? It's the word. It's the explanation of the teachings of Jesus. But further into our reading, chapter 3, verse 22, we read that heaven must receive him, that's Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore all things. It's not yet that time. There'll be some things that aren't restored until Jesus returns. The miracles, the signs, the healings that Jesus, the apostles did, any that occur now, they're signs that the kingdom is coming, but it's not completely here yet. They're breakings in of the kingdom into present experience. But the restoration of all things awaits Jesus' return, it awaits a future day. 
Miracles authenticated Jesus and his apostles. They give us a foretaste of this coming new creation when God will restore all things. It's what we read about in Revelation 21. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. We live now in the old order. We're waiting for the new order when Jesus comes. Not everyone gets healed. Another principle that we need to bear in mind is when we're reading a narrative text like this, just because God has done it, doesn't mean he will always do it. God can do all things, but he doesn't always do all things. Think about some of the other things that we'll encounter as we go through the book of Acts. Why doesn't God supernaturally apply the kind of church discipline that we saw that ended the life of Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to God. Lots of people lie to God, even in churches. Why doesn't God administer church discipline of that kind all the time? What about humbling proud leaders? Have we, got any humble, have we got any proud leaders these days? King Herod took glory that should only be given to God when the crowd virtually worshipped him. Uh, we'll read about that in a little while as well. But he was struck dead. He was eaten of worms and died. Why doesn't God continue to do that with all the boastful leaders that we see strutting the world in the local stage? Because just because he can doesn't mean he always will. What about the miraculous prison breaks that we read of? Peter released from prison. Paul and Silas released from prison. There's lots of Christians in prison now. There's lots of Christians losing their life now, like in Afghanistan. Why doesn't God miraculously spare them? Just because he can doesn't mean he always will. You see, the thing is, God's purposes for us are bigger than our desires, bigger than what we just want. And some of what God wants to achieve in our lives requires suffering. Now, that's an uncomfortable truth, but it's a biblical one. And so you can see it in Romans 5, you can see it in 1 Peter 1, you can see it in James 1. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says this. And remember, Peter, the preacher of this sermon, when he wrote his epistle, he included lots of information about the very real prospect of suffering. Peter, the healer, wrote to the people that he was writing to and, and told them that their life will involve suffering. And in fact, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering is part of God's will for us because there are lessons that we'll learn through suffering that can't be learned any other way. So what was Luke's priority in all of this? What is Luke's priority throughout his book? We've already seen it, but let's look at it again. Luke's priority, he tells us about the sign, but he gives much more detail about the sermon. And the consequence of the sermon we read in chapter 4, verse 4. Many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So we've seen 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. There's another 2,000 saved on this particular occasion. So one sign led to 2,000 miracles because there is nothing more miraculous than the transformation of a sinful, unbelieving heart into a believing heart, a heart that is capable of worshipping the one true God, a heart that surrenders to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatest miracle. The prophet Ezekiel talked about hearts of stone being turned into hearts of flesh. Jesus says we must be born again. It's regeneration. It's dead people, spiritually dead people becoming alive. 
The one sign attracted a crowd. Peter used that opportunity to preach the word that led to the salvation of 2,000 people. One sign, 2,000 miracles. But as we finish, I'd like to just consider a, a few words from Johnny Erickson. Um, perhaps you've seen this book, uh, The God I Love by Johnny Erickson. Uh, she wrote a very famous book about her experience of suffering uh, quadriplegia as a result of a diving accident. And she's had a wonderful, enduring Christian ministry as, as a, a speaker and a, a, an advocate for the, uh, for the disabled. Uh, she set up a, a ministry, uh, but she's written wonderful books and, and made records and films and all sorts of stuff. But one day she and her husband were at the pool of Bethesda where Jesus healed that man of 38 years, uh, lameness. And this is what she says of her experience. I gulped hard remembering the times that I'd lain numb and depressed in my hospital bed, hoping and praying that Jesus would heal me, that he would come to my bedside as he did with the man on the straw mat, that he would see me and not pass me by. Johnny cried out for Jesus to heal her from her quadriplegia. She goes on, she says, you won't believe how many times I used to picture myself here at the pool of Bethesda waiting for Jesus to heal her. And now after 30 years, she says, I am here. I made it. Jesus didn't pass me by. He didn't overlook me. He came my way and answered my prayer. He said no. And so she writes a prayer here. She says, Lord, your, your answer, no answer to physical healing meant yes to a deeper healing, a better one. Your answer has bound me to other believers and taught me so much about myself. It's purged sin from my life. It's strengthened my commitment to you, forced me to depend on your grace. Your wiser, deeper answer has stretched my hope and refined my faith and helped me to know you better. And you are good. You are so good. And she looks down at her paralyzed, paralyzed legs and she thanks God for her wheelchair. And that's faith. That's faith. That's acknowledging that in God's kingly purposes, he's free to use even suffering to achieve what he wants in our life. And so as she finishes up, she says that she's learnt that there are some things in life more important than walking. What an extraordinary testimony. God doesn't heal everyone, but he saves all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. He saves them for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the challenges that it lays before us. Uh, we believe that you're a God of great power, unlimited power, of unlimited goodness too. And we don't always understand your ways in the world. Uh, but your word does reveal to us that sometimes it is your purpose that we should suffer. So when we do, as we've seen from Johnny, we pray that you would help us to suffer uh, joyfully, hopefully, obediently, trusting that you are working out your good and perfect purposes in us and through us. We trust that you would be glorified in our lives so that if we do suffer, uh, you would use it for our good and for your glory and even for the good of others too, we pray. We thank you for Peter and John and their boldness in taking the opportunity to preach that message. And we thank you that uh, on that day, many received the Lord Jesus and, and repented and turned to him and came to know him as not only the author of life, but as the holy and righteous one who died for their sins. Father, I pray that you would help each of us here today 
to accept your will and purpose in our life and to continue to live uh, joyfully, hopefully, uncomplainingly through whatever you bring us so that uh, we can be refined as you choose and so that we can be used for your purposes as we wait the day that the Lord Jesus comes to restore all things. So we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. God bless you and I'll see you again soon.